Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, June 9, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator this morning. Our whole journey through the steps takes us to a place called Recovered, a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. The big book says that recovery requires a transformation of thought and attitudes. The steps produce changes within ourselves and our attitudes, so it's no longer necessary to seek the ease and comfort of that first bite. Here to speak about what it does it mean to be recovered is Christy, a recovered compulsive overeater from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Christy, welcome to the line this morning. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everyone. My name is Christy, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And uh, grateful, grateful to be here. Even at 7.30 uh, Minnesota time on a Sunday morning, there is nowhere I would rather be, uh, nowhere I would rather be than the opportunity to tell my story, to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. Um, and not just because it's, you know, my opportunity to talk about me, but it's my opportunity to carry the message, the message of hope, the message of hope to the still-suffering compulsive overeater. Um, you know, I love what it says in the forward to the first edition. This is so important because it describes uh, what the purpose of the book was. And, and, you know, this was written in the first printing of the first edition in 1939. And what it says is, in the very first few lines, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. A seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics in my case, compulsive overeaters, precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. And I, you know, I just love that. I love the big book. I love the message that's in the big book um, and the hope that it brings. Um, you know, I have a big book. I have the fourth edition of the big book, uh, who, which, um, which, which is not the first uh, copy I ever bought. I bought my first copy of the big book back in 1994 when I first came to OA. But I have the fourth edition, which was written in 2001. And, you know, I read this book uh, every day. Um, my book is, you know, it's you know, the binder has broken it into different sections because I'm opening it up so much and reading it and I have it highlighted and I have notes in the margins and it's, you know, it's broken up. I counted how many sections my book is broken up into, and it's like 10 different sections of the book. Um, not in any particular section, but it's just broken up into different sections just because that's, that's how much I read this book. That's how much I love this book and how much I use this book. And what I like about the big book is that for me it is um, really truly broken up into the first section which is, you know, describes why I need the big book. This is why I need the program of recovery. This is why I need, um, you know, why I need this. You know, the first 58 or so pages of the big book before we get to the section, the chapter, how it works, describes to me why I need the program. When I first came to OA, you know, the meetings that I attended started with how it works. But none, of, none of the meetings started with why I need it. And uh, I'm just so grateful that I, I truly started reading this book 
um, and really taking to heart what it was telling me on September 9th of 2001, which is my date of abstinence. And I have not found it necessary to pick up no matter what since September 9th of 2001. And I've been maintaining a 130-pound weight loss for over 10 years. I'm at a doctor-prescribed um, weight. You know, my body mass index is exactly where it should be. And, um, you know, that's, you know, only through the grace of living the principles in this book one day at a time. And, you know, my story is not unlike a lot of other stories I hear, which is essentially that for me, I, you know, I ate and then I just kept going. I started eating at a very early age, uh, which doesn't make me a worse compulsive overeater. That's just part of my story. You know, I remember at the age of four, I was just talking about this the other day, that at the age of four, my mom, I mean, I, I, I'll never forget, you know, here I am, 53 years old today, and at the age of four, I remember standing in front of the avocado green refrigerator in Phoenix, Arizona, where we lived at the time, and my mom had made no-bake cocoa cookies, and I was standing in front of the refrigerator waiting for them to cool, you know, waiting for them to cool. You know, and that was in 1963, in 1963, so there I was, you know, waiting for the cookies to cool, which was probably, you know, 1963 was probably the last time I waited for anything to cool. But, um, you know, I was standing there waiting for them to cool, and I remember my mom saying, you know, you can't eat those yet, they're too, they're too hot, which was probably also the last time I asked whether I could eat something. So, you know, that's just, I just, I mean, it, it started, this preoccupation with food started at an early age, a fascination, if you will, with food. And what I liked about food is that it did something for me. And the big book describes this very well. And what it says is that um, we, we um, who are true compulsive overeaters like the effect. We like the effect. Um, and you know, we like the effect produced by food. And the, you know, it says on page XXVIII that, you know, someone like me eats because I like the effect produced by food. And that sensation is so elusive that while I admit it is injurious, and certainly at the age of four, the only thing that I thought was injurious at that point was, you know, burning my tongue and my esophagus by eating cookies that were too hot. You know, that's kind of the, the extent of what I thought would be injurious, perhaps at that time. Um, uh, and for me, I certainly hadn't jumped into that state of finding it necessary to eat compulsively um, the obsession hadn't quite kicked in. I just knew I liked the effect. I liked the effect. I liked what did what food did for me. And as a skinny kid, you know, my mom actually thought I was under eating and took me to the doctor and said, you know, I mean, I was this tall, skinny kid. I'm almost six one now, and I was a skinny, tall kid. And my mom took me to the doctor, and she was worried that I wasn't eating enough. And the doctor just said to her, you know, kids eat when they're hungry. That's what kids do. So 
I mean, my mom didn't try to force food on me or do anything like that. But I remember, uh, you know, I did that. I did that all by myself, all by myself. And um, when, you know, as I got older, um, certainly in my preteen years, what I remember is, you know, I'm the oldest of four kids, and I was the kid that was preoccupied with food. My siblings were not preoccupied with food, and the way that played out is that whenever we all got something, I wanted theirs. Or when we were ready to cut, you know, dessert, I wanted the biggest piece. And I would say, I want that one. I want that one. I want the corner. I want the one with the giant frosting flower on the top of it. Um, I would negotiate with my siblings to get their food. Um, I, wanted, I wanted more. I wanted more. And as I reached uh, the age of 12, you know, at that time I was 5'4", I weighed 124 pounds, and I thought I was absolutely huge. And compared to other kids, I was. You know, I was much taller than other kids in my class. And, um, you know, if you think about someone who's 5'4 and weighs 124 pounds, and for me, I was physically active as a kid. I um, certainly uh, was not overweight by any means looking back at pictures, but that didn't matter. What was going on in my head is what mattered to me, and I thought I was fat. And I went on a diet at the age of 12. And my diet consisted of buying, you know, with babysitting money, because that would have been the only money I had, buying a calorie counting book that had thousands of entries in it, thousands of entries. I mean, this book was thicker than my big book, and it had you know, entries of, you know, fast foods. And I mean, I would pour through that book and I would say things to myself like, why don't we have Long John Silver's in this area? Why don't we have Popeye's chicken here? You know, I was reading about these fast food places that we didn't have where I, where I lived at the time. And that's the kind of thing I was thinking along with, you know, how can I only consume 900 calories a day? And I have no idea where I got the number 900 but I thought that it should be under 1,000 um, for some reason. Who knows where I got that? I, you know, who knows where I got that? I don't even remember where I got it, but that's what I had in my mind, that it should be 900, and I meticulously counted everything out so that I wouldn't go over 900. Not 899 and not 901, but 900. So, you know, whatever it was, including eating a Tic Tac so I could get to that magic 900, that is what I did. And at some, at some point, and I don't know if it was then, and I don't know if it was later, I wish I could tell you the date. I mean, certainly as I describe my story, you know, you can hear that obsession. I'm describing it to you. But I don't know at what point in my life, you know, food, this companion and this, you know, this, um, this substance that had given me the ease and comfort, I don't know where it turned on me. I don't know where it turned on me. I certainly know that that obsession with food and that obsession with weight had kicked in, but, but I don't know where the combination of the two of those things became all 
consuming. I mean, it sounds like um, it happened at an early age, and it feels like it happens at an early, it happened at an early age for me. Uh, and honestly, when I think back on my life, when I reflect back on my life from the age of four until I got into recovery and put the food down on September 9th of 2001, I don't re- ever remember not being obsessed with food and or weight. I don't remember. I don't remember a time. And it didn't matter how much I weighed. It didn't matter whether I was 5'4 and weighed 124 pounds. It didn't matter whether I weighed, uh, you know, 150 pounds. It didn't matter whether I weighed 340 pounds. I was crazy. I was absolutely crazy when it came to food. And, um, oh, it just, you know, I, you know, I know for some of you, you can relate for some of you, you can relate. I mean, it's just hard to come up with adjectives and adverbs to describe what it was like. It was, it was a living hell. It was horrible. I mean, the big book uses so many words, despair and bewilderment. And I mean, I just, it was, I was, I was hopeless. And so even the idea that I could find any kind of hope in recovery was completely foreign to me. I had no idea that it would be possible to put the food down and to not want to compulsively overeat. For me, diets, uh, you know, certainly my weight started um, you know, increasing on my body. You know, it seemed like the harder I tried to control my weight, the worse it got. The more I tried not to eat compulsively, the worse the obsession got. The worse the obsession got for me. And, um, you know, it just it didn't get what, better. This disease progressed to the point where, you know, at, at one point, certainly my weight, the consequences of my addiction and my eating compulsively uh, started to appear. And I, uh, you know, in high school, I was overweight, slightly overweight. Uh, I have no idea what my weight should have been. Um, you know, I would read magazines and, you know, read about someone maybe who was six feet tall and only weighed 140 pounds because they were a model in a size four. And that's what I wanted, that emaciated look. And um, I, you know, that was my target. Um, you know, and I did anything I could to try to get there. Uh, as my, you know, my disease progressed, um, and again the consequences um, exhibited themselves in my body. You know, I would, I would say to myself, you know, I'm not going to get past 180 pounds because all of a sudden I'd get on the scale. You know, I couldn't fit into my pants that I'd been able to wear. You know, a couple of months ago, maybe it would be the next season, and I'd put my shorts on and I wouldn't be able to, you know, button them up. Or I'd been eating nonstop from, you know, Labor Day all the way through, um, let's say, I don't know, pick a holiday. Um, And it didn't matter which holiday it was. Let's just say Easter because Easter candy is in the stores. And I would all of a sudden have to lose weight before it was the shorts and swimsuit season. You know, and I'd be in a panic mode and, you know, trying those kind of clothes on that I'd been able to wear last summer and I couldn't wear them anymore. And that resolve that I had to not eat compulsively through the winter had gone by the wayside in favor of eating compulsively uh, because I couldn't not eat. I couldn't not eat. It, it didn't matter that I said I wasn't going to eat. I ate anyways. I, 
you know, I would go on some crazy diet, I mean, crazy diet, and I would tell myself I wasn't going to eat, I was going to eat three, my, three meals a day, I was going to walk for, you know, I don't know, six miles a day, rain or shine, it didn't matter, I'd be the only one, I lived in a place, you know, not in Minnesota, but another place where it was snowy, and I would be outside, I'd be the only one outside, and I'd be walking, you know, like a crazy person around the track of this park, you know, there I was, the only car in the parking lot, and I'd be walking like a cra- like a crazy, I mean, if you drove by, you would say, what is that woman doing out there? She's walking around the park. She's by herself walking around like crazy. Like I was on a mission. I was on a mission to control my weight. I was on a mission to control my weight. And the more I tried, the crazier I got. I was exercising seven times a day or I would tell myself I'm not going to um, eat you know, I'm not going to eat carbs, I'm not going to eat sugar, I'm not going to have dessert, I'm going to push myself away from the table. I know I'll stop when I'm full. I will stop when I am full. I would go on diets with partners. And, you know, I remember um, one time in particular, probably because I actually saw how absolutely crazy I was. It was an opportunity for me to see how truly crazy my eating was. And I had made a commitment that I wasn't going to bring, you know, quote unquote, bad food into the house. And, um, you know, my partner and I were going to go on a diet together and not have any bad food in the house. And I remember that, you know, the minute my partner had gone to work, I baked cookies and I put them in a cookie tin and I hid them under the sink, you know, behind all of the caustic chemicals. And, of course, I put them in a tin so they'd be safe and sound. And, um, and I ate them, you know, and talked about how hard this diet was. And the minute she was out of sight, I was eating those cookies. I couldn't stop thinking about them. And, um, you know, talking about how well we were doing. And, you know, every night after work, we'd go for a walk and talk about how great we felt. And all I could think about was those cookies and the fact that there were still some left. And that, that's how I lived my life. Uh, it got too much for me. You know, it got too much for me to try to manage my, my food and my weight. And um, I finally just said, you know, this is, this is way too hard. This is too much for me. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'm not any different than, Anyone else um, who identifies with what is in the big book, you know, the doctor's opinion describes people like me who says, you know, who describes people like us as the type who always believes that after being entirely free from a particular food for a period of time that, you know, we can take a, a bite of that food uh, without danger, you know, without danger. And I saw that exhibited in my life over and over again. I, I found myself unwilling also to admit that I could not um, stop eating compulsively. You know, I could not. What I decided I would do instead, you know, I had a really great idea, and that was that I would just accept myself the way I was. 
I would just accept myself, you know, whatever the weight was, maybe it was 200 pounds, and um, I would accept myself the way I was and just, you know, get into the fat acceptance movement, and that's exactly what I did, hoping somehow that that would give me freedom, that I would be free if I just accepted myself the way I was. And guess what? That did not set me free. That did not set me free. Telling myself that I had the freedom to eat whatever I wanted. I created a food plan that said, just eat whatever you want. Eat whatever you want. That's, what the, that's the ticket here. That's going to give you freedom, Christy. Be free to eat whatever you want. And you know what? There was no freedom in that. There was no freedom in that because by that time, I was a prisoner. I was a prisoner of, of my disease. I was a prisoner. You know, it didn't matter that proverbial rock and hard place whether I told myself to eat with complete abandon, eat whatever you want, or restrict your food and eat only certain foods, eat only certain amounts, neither one of those, neither one of those brought me joy and freedom and happiness. None of those. And there is a, not a worse place in the world to be, at least from my experience, eating whatever I wanted with complete abandon or <laughs> restricting my food. Neither one of those brought me freedom. And that, oh, that was just, that was the worst place to be. Uh, maybe I should say almost the worst place to be because, you know, before you knew it, before you knew it, um, you know, I'd gone to the doctor because I was experiencing stomach pain, severe stomach pain. And, you know, I never went to the doctor because what the doctors would usually tell me is that I, you know, my weight was out of, out of range. My weight was out of control. My weight was off the charts according to, you know, my height and my weight was not proportionate. And so, you know, going to the doctor with severe stomach pains, I mean, there was nothing I could do except go to the doctor. And, you know, I weighed 305 pounds. I got on the scale and I weighed 305 pounds and I was absolutely appalled. I was absolutely shocked. I had no idea that my weight had gotten that high. I had no idea. I certainly you know, looked in the mirror and tried to just focus on that area just between, you know, my eyebrows and basically the bottom of my lips. I mean, that was the focus of my entire life, that and the bottom of, you know, the empty potato chip bag and the empty box of donuts and, you know, the, the crumbs at the bottom of the box of cereal. I mean, that was the, kind of the extent of my life. So I was absolutely shocked, as you can imagine, when I you know, when the doctor said 305 pounds, you know, Christy, you weighed 305 pounds, and not only that, but you've got, you know, severe gallstones, and you need to get into the hospital now, I, I'm going to admit you. Um, you know, I just remember being put in the hospital, and they could not operate on me. They had to wait for a week. I mean, I, they were afraid that I would die on the operating room table. The surgeon came in and said, you know, we can't operate on you. Your, your levels, everything is so out of whack that we're afraid, you know, we're afraid you'll die. 
So we have to completely take you off food, including, I mean, they wouldn't even let me have ice chips. They wouldn't let me have any food. And you can imagine, even on morphine for the pain, how painful that was for someone like me. You know, I would sit, I'm, here I am laying in the hospital bed, and all I can think about is food. All I can think about is food. Can't you put something else in this IV drip for me? You know, can you maybe grind up something and, you know, feed it to me intravenously? Uh, you know, I was looking at magazines and saying to myself, the minute I get out of here, the minute I'm, I get out of here, I'm going to, you know, bake myself happy with this recipe in this magazine. I mean, it made me absolutely crazy. And I, and I remember, you know, way at the back of my mind thinking, this is really crazy. You know, you, here you are in the hospital. The surgeon is afraid to operate on you because you'll die. You're not eating because your levels of everything are so far out of whack. You know, your white blood count, all the stuff that's supposed to be within certain ranges is so far out there. Um, they're afraid you'll die. And what you're thinking about is cake. You know, that's, what, that's, that's where my disease had taken me. That is the ride my disease had taken me on. And, uh, you know, it was two more years, you know, that story where Bill talks about, you know, it, this is the end. This has to be the end. You know, I'm going to jump out the window. I'm absolutely crazy. And then, you know, he says, you know, this, this was it. This was it. And, and he kept going. And he kept going. He just knew. He just knew he was crazy, and he just kept going. And that's what it was like for me. I knew I was crazy, and I kept going for two more years. And guess what? My eating did not get any better. It didn't get any better. And I thought for sure the 20 pounds I lost in that one week at the hospital would be my kickstart. That's going to be my kickstart for getting me um, on the right track. And you know what? It did nothing for me. I ate exactly the way I had eaten before my stomach started hurting really bad. Um, you know, and my question as the doctor was discharging me from the hospital was, now can I eat the same way or do I need to eat a certain way now that you've taken my gallbladder out? And they said, nope, you can eat exactly the way you were before. Thank you. That was the best news I'd had all day. I could eat exactly the way I was eating before, like a crazy person. And so, you know, fast forward two years, guess what? I gained weight. I gained weight. I got up to about 340 pounds, give or take a couple, and um, I could not do it anymore. You know, I, I could not do it anymore. I, couldn't, I could not live the way I'd been living anymore. And it got so bad. It got so bad that I was at work and... Um, you know, a friend of mine was in AA, and for some crazy reason, the two of us went out on a smoke break. You know, I'd given up smoking, um, you know, a few years ago, but I walked outside with him so we could have a cigarette, and I just said, I need help. You know, I need help. I mean, you could look at me and see how absolutely miserable I was, and not just because of my weight, not just because I weighed 340 pounds. You know, I look at pictures, and my eyes were dead. I had no life. I had no life in me. I was miserable, miserable, even when, you know, even when, you know, that glorious moment when I would find myself alone, alone, you know, this was the best thing ever. I'm going to be alone with my food. I'm going to get what I want. You know, maybe my partner was out of town. Maybe my partner was out of town, so I wouldn't 
have to worry about eating something, you know, eating the carton and then having to go out and replace it and then eating it down to wherever it was when I started eating it. You know, I knew I wouldn't have to do that. You know, I could go out. I could get all the food I wanted. I was going to be alone. Oh, the best. This was the best setup. I was going to be alone with my food. Um, I had the remote control, and I was going to sit there on my couch, and I was not going to leave. I was not going to leave. Now, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to be, you know, in a darkened living room with the remote control and every kind of possible food you could imagine? And that was absolute misery. That was absolute misery. I'd get excited thinking about it. I'd get so excited thinking about it. This is going to be the best experience ever. I'm so excited. I can't wait. Can't you leave early? Do you want me to take you to the airport five hours before your flight leaves? You know, whatever it took to get myself started. And the minute I took that first bite, the minute I took that first bite, as I've heard it said, that first bite took me. And there was, you know, there was nothing joyous about the experience after I took that first bite. That ease and comfort lasted for seconds. That ease and comfort that I sought, that every drug addict, every alcoholic, every addict I've ever heard talk about addiction, that elusive feeling, that ease and comfort that I sought when I was four had taken me prisoner. It had me by the throat, and it was horrible. It was so horrible, I can't, you, you know, I wish there were more words I could come up with to describe the prison I was in. And then I couldn't not stop. It didn't matter that the physical limitations, that my stomach was so full. It was so full that the only relief, the only relief was, you know, can I get a knife and cut my stomach open? I mean, I would think about that. I, I need... You know, I need to let the pressure out. You know, I, I vomited. I did, I did whatever I could to get some sort of relief, and I couldn't not stop from going back again. I couldn't stop from going back again. And even the thought that, you know, Christy, don't you remember the pain and misery that you were in the last time you did that? It didn't matter. Those thoughts were supplanted quickly supplanted by the idea that I could somehow um, control and enjoy my eating. You know, when I controlled my eating, I didn't enjoy it. And when I enjoyed my eating, I couldn't control it. And I would tell myself it was going to be different. It was going to be different. The insanity, the insanity of telling myself every single time. And, and you know, this happened within hours. This happened within hours because the, the minute my body started processing, you know, that laborious um, effort of processing all of that food so that my stomach was somewhat emptied and there was room now for me to eat again. I was back. I was back in front of the refrigerator. I was opening cupboards looking for the answer, looking for the answer. Food was not a problem for me. Food was a solution for me. Food was a solution for me. Um, you know, it, it <laughs> you know, once I got to the point where I said, I, I, I need help, you know, I, I need help. I've got a problem. I've got a problem, and I knew the problem was somehow in my mind. I, I, I wasn't sure what. I had no idea what that meant. You know, my friend asked me, he asked me if I'd ever heard of Overeaters Anonymous. 
I, you know, I don't know that he'd ever mentioned it or that we had ever talked about it. But, you know, as, as you know, my higher power would provide someone, you know, happened to be smoking a cigarette that was familiar with the 12 steps and I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about Overeaters Anonymous and I couldn't stop um, asking him about it. And he said, for the love of Pete, let's go to a meeting. And he took me to my first meeting. He took me to my first meeting on August 7th of of 1994, and I could identify with what people were saying. You know, they talked about eating, they talked about um, food, and they talked about the obsession they had, just like me. And people were talking about the same things that had been going on in my mind um, for what, you know, really truly felt like my entire life. And, um, you know, the meeting I happened to go to. As lovely as it was, you know, you know, and after going there for some period of time, you know, there was what I came to, you know, realize a lot of fat serenity. You know, when I walked into the room, I was happy to see that there were other fat people there. You know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm going to use the term fat because I weighed 340 pounds. I certainly was fat, morbidly obese, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, you know, it was great to sit around in a circle and talk about our eating and our food and the fact that we were having a little trouble with food. Um, you know, and I picked up on the lingo soon enough and, you know, I memorized the prayers, you know, the third step prayer, which is why I bought the big book in the first place. I bought the big book because we said the third step prayer at the end of the meeting sometimes and I wanted to know where that prayer came from. And people said, oh, it comes from the big book, the AA big book. And I thought it was kind of crazy that we were reading something from Alcoholics Anonymous. Certainly I had my way with drugs and alcohol um, in my life, but you know, we were here to talk about food. We were here to talk about food, so I did not really see how it applied in my life. And um, you know, I happened to... You know, I did go to other meetings. I went to three meetings a week, in fact. I got very involved in intergroup, you know, because people talked about doing service. And again, you know, I weighed over 300 pounds, but I figured somehow abstinence would wash over me. I did meet someone who became my sponsor, and I adored this woman. You know, she was someone who had been a hardcore AAer, you know, started back in the 50s. And she, I mean, she had carried around her second edition of the big book and, um, you know, that's what she used. You know, she carried around the second edition of the big book and the two of us kind of struggled to find out what, you know, my abstinence was going to be. And I would ask everyone I knew what their abstinence, you know, how do you define your abstinence? And people would just say they defined it, you know, however. I mean, everybody I ran into, I would ask, you know, what's your food plan? What's your food plan? What's your food plan? Um, because that's what the focus of my recovery was, was a food plan. And, you know, people said they ate three meals um, with nothing in between one day at a time, and, and that's what I said I would do. You know, but by golly, I was going to pile that food as high as I could on that one plate. You know, I wanted to go out and get chargers or platters so that I was just eating one plate of food, um, you know, and people would say they had, you know, their meals had beginnings and their meals had endings and all this other stuff that was just kind of all over the place. And people would say they had, you know, they gave up sugar and I would say I don't have a problem with sugar. And then the truth is I, I have a problem with everything, you know. I mean, whatever. I mean, food, you know, food. For me it was a four-letter word. Food was a four-letter word. I mean, it just gave me problems because, you know, my problem really is 
you know, certainly I, you know, the, the, the foods that people, I hear other people talk about, sugar, fat, flour, and volume, all problems of mine. I can eat all kinds of foods um, in volume. You know, if I'm, you know, angry or need to get some sort of, uh, you know, whatever out of my system, some kind of anger, you know, I can certainly crunch on a giant bag of baby carrots, you know, that didn't, that wasn't helpful. You know, people never said, you know, give up carrots. I mean, that was something that was supposed to be good for you. So, you know, I just really struggled with what my food plan should be, what my food plan should be. And I sat in the rooms and I, I lost 140 pounds, you know, just by eating, you know, quote, unquote, whatever it was that would fit on that plate. You know, I was, I was giving up processed sugar. You know, this is kind of what I did. I'd make up a food plan and I'd follow it for a few minutes or maybe a few weeks even, maybe a few months, and um, sit in rooms, the rooms, and I would talk about how I was maybe having a little trouble with the food. You know, I was having a little trouble with the food. You know, I got down to 200 pounds, which... You know, it's someone who's almost 6'1 and who came from 340, I didn't look too bad. You know, I looked okay. And, um, I, you know, I, I would meet with my sponsor. We'd go out on Friday nights and have, you know, hamburgers and french fries. I'd have a beer. You know, she was, again, in AA. <clears throat> but for me, you know, I, I didn't give up alcohol. After all, it wasn't a problem for me. Um, you know, we'd talk about food, uh, what our food plan should be, what abstinence should be. Um, and all the while I said I was, you know, <clears throat> working the 12 steps. That's what working the 12 steps looked like. I had six, six sponsees. I had six sponsees. Um, they would call me usually after they had eaten compulsively. You know, they would call me. I mean, I remember a sponsee. I remember in particular a sponsee I had who was bulimic, had been hospitalized a number of times, anorexic. You know, she called me. I puked all the way home. I ate, puked all the way home. And I would say, you know, the best thing I could at that time, which was don't do that anymore. Don't do that anymore. That was the experience, strength, and hope I had, you know. Or I just ate an entire package of cookie dough. I just ate a roll of cookie dough. And I'd say, what kind? Huh, what kind of cookie dough? You know, that was what my sponsoring looked like. I had nothing. I had nothing to give my sponsees. I had nothing to give. You know, I wasn't digging my face into this big book. I was, you know on the edges of the cliff of compulsive overeating. You know, I was on the edge of that cliff. And I'll never forget the, the first time that, you know, here I had been, I didn't weigh and measure my food. I eyeballed my food. You know, I eyeballed my food. And I remember, you know, I would do things like I'm just going to have half a bagel. Well, I'm going to have the biggest half of the bagel. I mean, that's how my obsession will creep in. That is how the obsession of my mind works. You know, I'm going to cut it in half the, you know, the long way or whatever, and I am going to eat the top part because it's got more bread in it. I mean, you know, I'm crazy when it comes to food. You know, there's no relief for someone like me except entire abstinence, and I wasn't quite sure, again, what that was. So I'll, I'll never forget, you know, this one particular moment in time when I went over, again, my own definition of abstinence and a plan of eating and I and I stepped outside that boundary that I had created nobody else gave me this boundary I did you know again I created my own food plan and um, I'll never forget that I had eaten too much 
I had that feeling, that discomfort that I knew so well. And, oh, man, I'm telling you, I, I, I remember saying to someone, I, I ate too much. I don't know what to do now. I, I want to purge. I want to do whatever. I, I don't want this feeling because you know what? I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in trouble. My mind knew I was in trouble. My mind and body and spirit knew I was in trouble. And you know what? I was in trouble because the minute that happened, I was off and running. And why is that for someone like me? Why is that for someone like me? You know, it wasn't, unfortunately, for me until... Um, you know, I came back from relapse because, you know, you know the story. Those of you who can identify with what it's like to put the food down and pick it up again, which is exactly what happened with me, you know, I was off and running and I walked out of OA. I left, let those sponsees go, you know, after sitting in the room saying, I'm having a little trouble with food. I was gaining weight like you would not believe. I gained 100 pounds, and I couldn't stand sitting in the room saying I'm having a little trouble with food. I couldn't stand it anymore. I had no date of abstinence, none whatsoever, because I didn't know when I put the food down or when I picked it up. There was no... It was all a blur. It was all a blur to me. And I was on the Internet alternately searching for recipes and for how I could get my hands on the latest diet drug. You know, how can I get my hands on the drug that has the least horrible side effects? You know, the one that doesn't make your bowels, you know, lose your bowel, bowels uncontrollably. You know, I didn't want that one. Is there another one out there that I can try? And that's the way I was living my life. That's the way I was living my life. I was restless, I was irritable, and I was discontented until I could get the sense of ease and comfort which came at once by picking up that first bite and it lasted for seconds. And... For me, um, you know, uh, my life for almost two years, it was, you know, roughly, I don't know, um, you know, from the fall of 1999 until the summer of 2001 when I came back to OA, I just, I just said I can't live like this anymore. You know, here I am at 300 pounds. And I cannot stop thinking about food. I had moved from Seattle to Michigan and then from Michigan to Minnesota. I did a lot of geographics. And um, I walked into OA and I could not get abstinent. I could not. I, the same thing I had tried before, putting the food down, eating three meals a day, was not working. It was not working for someone like me. And there is nothing worse than having a head full of OA and a belly full of food. It was absolutely horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying to me. And um, it wasn't until September 2nd of 2001 when, you know, I happened to walk into a meeting where they were talking about the big book, which I had long, long ago scoffed at because, you know, how did that fit for someone like me, that I was actually presented with the doctor's opinion. And the idea that in the doctor's opinion, um, what it says, uh, you know, for someone like me is that I have two, a twofold illness. I have a twofold illness, and what that twofold illness is is that I have an allergy of the body, and the you know the definition that I use for allergy is that I have an obsession um, 
or excuse me, I have an allergy meaning an abnormal reaction to certain foods. Certainly, you know, as I've described volume, eating too much of something, anything, you know, getting that sense of being way too full. Um, and I also uh, do have an abnormal reaction to sugar and fat and flour, especially when they're all baked together. You know, that's just something that doesn't work for me. And that would be, you know, fine if and of, you know, in and of itself if I could just, you know, you know, weigh and measure my food, for example, and eat exactly the right amounts and eat only certain foods and not eat my trigger foods, you know, the, you know, not eat sugar and that sort of thing. That would be fine if that were the case, you know, perhaps if that were the case. When I was 12, um, I would never have had to go on another diet again. I would have learned how to eat healthy and nice portions and, you know, um, but, the, the second and the, the greater aspect of my disease is the obsession, the obsession of the mind. And what that means is that even when I put those foods down, I cannot stop thinking about them. I cannot stop thinking about them. And, you know, I mean, it's so beautifully put in the big book in many, many places. Um, and I just, I just love that, uh, you know, the, what was presented to me is that the 12 steps, the 12 steps were designed to help me identify character defects, character defects that led me to the food in the first place, that led me to the food in the first place and that could remove the obsession to eat compulsively. That's what the 12 steps were, were for. That's what they were designed for, for me. The 12 steps outlined a spiritual way of living, and that spiritual way of living to me meant, you know, honest thinking, not wishful thinking. It meant open-mindedness and a willingness to try. It meant having faith in a power greater than myself because my best thinking had me you know, absolutely crazy, you know, it didn't matter how much I weighed, that was absolutely irrelevant. You know, I tell you how much I weighed just so you know, you know, what food did to me. You know, you can see that, you know, if you saw me at that time or saw pictures of me, you know, it's unbelievable what food did to me. What you never saw was what food did for me. You never saw what food did for me. You know, it helped me avoid any kind of pain in life. It helped me get over whatever kind of feelings I had. You know, it helped me you know, I thought be less sensitive uh, around how other people talked to me or looked at me or were treating me, you know, that sense of unfairness, you know, whatever was going on in my life. It helped me celebrate the good times. It helped me get over the bad times. Um, but what I really, you know, what I, you know, the steps have given me is a way to completely, um, you know, transform my life, completely transform my life. You know, the idea of having a spiritual experience and that spiritual awakening described in the big book, you know, it, it says on page 567 that spiritual, the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakening um, shows that the personality change, um, you know, the description of that is to have a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And for me, you know, I also love the description of what that means in step 12. You know, step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, uh, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principle and, principles in all our affairs. And what it says to me is that spiritual awakening, the most important meaning of it is, and this is on page 106, 
is that he has now become able to do, feel, and believe that which he could not do before on his unaided strength and resources alone. We have been granted a gift which amounts to a new state of consciousness and being. And what does that mean? It means that I have found myself in possession of a degree of honesty, tolerance, unselfishness, peace of mind, and love of which he thought, of which I thought myself quite incapable. Now, did I think that that was really my problem on September 9th of 2001, which is the first day I put down the food? Absolutely not. I had no idea. I had no idea that um, I knew that my life was unmanageable, at least with respect to food, but I admitted I was powerless. I mean, there was evidence upon evidence that suggested my life, at least with respect to food, was completely unmanageable. And what I did on September 9th is, you know, I, you know, when I called my sponsor and said, you know, I need help, will you sponsor me? You know, I'm desperate. She said, let's give it a try. And I called her on September 9th. And, you know, I had like three different food plans that I researched that I was going to try one of, you know, like, because again, you know, I was searching for recipes and, you know, drugs and I guess, you know, I should also throw in their plans of eating. I had like three different ideas about what I thought I should eat. And my sponsor said, you know what, let's just get you started for crying out loud. Pick one or here, use mine and then go to your doctor. Go to your doctor and make sure it's something that will, it will work for you. And that's exactly what I did. You know, I went to see a nutritionist. I went to see a doctor for the first time in years. Um, you know, when my doctor, you know, looked at me and at 300 pounds said, anything's got to be doing better, you know, anything's got to be better than what you're doing, you know, yeah, get, let's give it a try and see what happens and let's, you know, see where it takes you and as you lose weight, we'll figure out what your um, body weight should be. And my sponsor from that first day had me, had my head in the doctor's opinion. You know, I opened the spine of the big book and I started reading and I wrote on my food history, am I a compulsive overeater or am I not? Am I a compulsive overeater? Do I have an allergy to food such that when I pick up, my body has an abnormal reaction to that food. Yes, I have an allergy of the body. And worse yet, do I get excited when I think about having that food? And once I take that first bite, can I Stop thinking about that food? Absolutely not. I will continue. I will continue, and there is no end in sight. And it doesn't matter how much I weigh. It does not matter what I do. What matters is um, that I will continue. I, I had gone past the gates of insanity. The only other place for me was death. I did not want to live anymore. My, my solution, my solution to stop from compulsive overeating was to take my life. I wanted to hit the gravel on the side of the road and turn my car over. And my fear, my fear was that I wouldn't die. That was my fear. My fear in doing that was I that did, I wouldn't I die. That I wouldn't black. die. Had to replace it for and me. so no. for me, no. I... Um, yeah, this is an old bike with old tires. This is oh, probably excuse me, I can hear someone tire. talking. Bikes? Oh yeah, I know. I bought this bike in Texas. Can and can you press star one to unmute? Christy, I'm going to mute the line. Okay, thank you so much. It sounds like an interesting conversation, but um, you know what I want to say is, you know, having, you know. 
pushed my head into the big book, I mean, that is what took me out of the bag of Doritos and out of the, you know, box of donuts. Because I did not, you know, having the idea of, you know, Christy, this is life or death, you know, again, my solution, my idea to get me out of the compulsion was to end my life. You know, that was the only, that was the only solution I could come up with because, again, you know, eating, eating was a horrible place to be and not eating was a horrible place to be. The proverbial rock and hard place, you know, the jumping off point. I was at the jumping off point. And, you know, I was willing to do whatever my sponsor said, even, even if it meant finding a power greater than myself, even if it meant finding a power greater than myself. You know, I did not, you know, I didn't like the word God. I didn't, you know, I didn't even want to capitalize the G. That's how defiant I was. You know, maybe I should call my higher power a goddess. Maybe I should call my higher power spirit of the universe, czar of the heavens, you know, I, I, I got so focused on that when I was in recovery in OA, you know, from 1994 until 1999, you know, again, the focus was on my, you know, my food plan and what my, I should call my higher power. I didn't like what anybody said about a higher power. And by the time I got desperate enough, I didn't care. You want me to believe in a, a, a God? You want to call it God? I don't care what it is. I don't care what it is. My, you know, I knew that this was a life or death matter, and that was all I needed to know. That was all I needed to know. You need a, you know, it's like my mind was cracked open just barely enough with the idea that I asked for help and I didn't care how it was presented. You know, I want your help. I want your help because in, in this person, in my sponsor, I saw, one, I saw someone in whom the problem had been solved. I saw someone in whom the problem had been solved. And before that, before that, um, you know, what I would say to myself is that, um, you know, I just, you know, I, I wanted to handle my problem my own way. You know, I wanted to handle, I wanted to define my own abstinence. I mean, I just, I didn't want anything to interfere with my drinking or my eating. You know, it says drinking in the big book. But I didn't want anyone to interfere with my eating. You know, I've had people call me up and say, you know, Christy, you just sound so passionate about your recovery and I'd really like you to sponsor me or maybe they've seen me in a meeting and, you know, I call my sponsor every single day. I do weigh and measure my portion because that's what works for me. Um, it has gotten me down to a maintenance weight. I know I am absolutely powerless when it comes to eating. I mean, you know, I just am. I'm powerless over certain foods. I don't eat my trigger foods or my binge foods, you know, sugar, fat, flour, etc. volume. You know, I've gotten down to a maintenance weight. Um, I talk to other people in recovery. I carry my message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers at face-to-face -face meetings. And, you know, when I talk about the details of what I do, there are people, you know, I've had call me and say, I'd like you to sponsor me, but here are the things I don't want to do. You know, I, I, I can't, I, I only know how this worked for me. I don't know how it's going to work for you. I really don't know how it's going to work for you. I just know what works for me. And what has especially worked for me is the application of the steps in my life every day. You know, the big book, um, you know, describes to me that selfishness and self-centeredness and, um, 
you know, those, those kinds of character defects are at the root of, of our troubles. You know, it says that on page 62 and 63, 64 and 65, talk about, you know, having, you know, turned my life and my will over to the care of a higher power, you know, turning my mind and my body over to a higher power, I better dig into the steps. You know, I had better dig into the steps because I'm being chased by an addiction that is absolutely resentless. And it even says that, you know, we have to get rid of our selfishness or it will kill us. You know, it says this on, on page 62. You know, it says that my character defects are deadly. You know, it will kill us. How can, how can being rid of selfishness, you know, what does that mean? It's going to kill me? Seriously? Um, it tells me that resentment is the number one offender, that, um, you know, that I will die. That I will die if I do not take care of this. And I believe that today. You know, I believe that today, that if my mind starts obsessing about anything, I'm in trouble. That if I let something, di you know, live in my head, which is what it says, you know, to, to think of something over and over again. I mean, that's what the, you know, I've got a definition for resentment. You know, am I letting something reside in my head? Then I am in trouble. I am in trouble. And it says here that... Um, if I let up on the spiritual program of action and I rest on my laurels, then I am headed for trouble because alcohol is a subtle foe. I have been relieved of the obsession to compulsively overeat. I have no desire. It does not enter my mind today to eat compulsively. It has absolutely been removed. It has absolutely been removed, and I never, ever, ever thought that was possible. That's not what I came in for. That isn't what I came in for. I didn't even come in to lose weight. I just came in because I knew I was crazy. I knew I was crazy, and in the same way people said, you know, we know you weigh 300 pounds, it will be possible for you to lose weight and to maintain a healthy weight, it will also be possible for the obsession to be removed, for the obsession to be removed. I, I, I didn't buy it at the time, but I just on blind faith put the blinders on and I said, okay, I'm just going to trust you and I'm going to jump in with both feet. And I just did what people told me who had recovered. That's all I did. Nothing special. You know, I can, I love what I heard Harlan say, I think it was last week, you know, where he said he could complicate um, a two-car parade. You know, and I thought of that. I mean, that just made me laugh. I can make things so much more complicated. You know, the, the big book outlines what my character defects are. The big book tells me how to live my life every single day. You know, every self-help book I ever bought, I could have found in just a few pages of the big book. You know, I bought my first copy of the big book for $6.50, I think is what it cost. Maybe it was $4.50. I don't remember. But um, under 10 bucks, under 10 bucks, an instruction manual for how to live life for how to live life, to live these principles in all my affairs. Because if I don't, if I don't, I'm in trouble. And it even says here um, that we are not cured of alcoholism. We have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. You know, it, it says here that we must, here's a must, here's a must, it's not even a suggestion. We must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. That's, that is what living, that is what living this program is about for me. You know, I liken it to, you know, being recovered or being cured, you know, not getting hung up on the words. 
for me, being recovered means I have no desire to eat compulsively. I have no desire to eat compulsively. You know, having a state of mind that is undisturbed is my goal today. That is my goal today in recovery. That is the goal and the aim for me. That spiritual, living my life in a, you know, living the principles in my life um, is the goal today. And, you know, it reminds me of you know, last year I had some major surgery on my ankle and, um, you know, they had to completely undo my, I mean, undo, really detach my Achilles tendon and, you know, clean it up and reattach it. You know, it was a really big deal. And I remember going into the orthopedic surgeon and I tried a bunch of other stuff first and it just didn't help. You know, I tried the less invasive um, uh, approach, certainly, first of all, I didn't jump right into surgery, but, you know, I tried the easier, softer way, if you will, beforehand. And, you know, I was sitting there and I said, you know, can you tell me why this happened? And a lot of people would ask me, you know, why, why do you have that problem? And so I, you know, I asked why. Um, you know, and, and he said to me, well, you know, it could be hereditary. It could be, you know, wearing high heels or shoes that are tight on the back of your heel. You know, it could be, could be a number of things. It really could be a number of things. Um, but essentially, you know, knowing why isn't going to make any difference. I mean, does your heel still hurt? And the answer was yes. I mean, I tried for years to figure out why I was a compulsive overeater. You know, is it because it's genetic? I mean, is, would that matter to me if I knew somehow, if I knew why I was a compulsive overeater, um, it would make a huge difference? It didn't make a difference at all. You know, I still had the surgery. I've got a big scar to prove it, and I've recovered. I have recovered from that surgery. You know, I've recovered from um, having that and I take care of my ankle so, you know, whatever maybe caused it uh, before won't cause it again. I, I, you know, do the exercises and all the stuff and it's as though I never had it. It's as though I never had the problem, which is nothing short of a miracle and that's kind of the way I look at my recovery. Um, I know I'm a compulsive overeater. I know I can go back. I'm telling you, in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat, I can go back. Um, I have not picked up no matter what has happened in my life. I've lived one-fifth of my life in recovery today. I've been given back 11 years of, of life today. That's the way I look at it. Because I was doomed, I was doomed to an alcoholic or compulsive overeating death. I absolutely know that. Um, both of my parents have high blood pressure. Both of my parents are type 2 diabetic. They both have heart disease. I don't have any of those. I don't have any of those at all. All of my levels are normal. And they have been for years. For years, I'm a model patient. You know, that's just the way it played out for me. And I consider myself extremely lucky. Extremely lucky. You know, and that certainly is you know, the physical aspect, but I'll tell you, you know, I've just got, you know, a couple of things here, you know, and I could go on and on, but I, you know, I, I want to allow people, if you have questions, um, to ask them, but, you know, I, I, you know, my boss at work wrote me this lovely little card, and I just thought, you know, I'm so lucky to have, you know, someone who, who does that, you know, who's thoughtful enough to do that. But, you know, she, she wrote this card and gave it to me and she just said, thank you so much. You know, you displayed great leadership through this particular project you were working on. Thank you for the excellent planning and follow through and especially for involving and motivating the team. It is so great to work with you and really fun. And, you know, my son, stepson's friend wrote, 
a card uh, to me. You are such a special person to me, and I really want you to know that and how much I appreciate your support and generosity. I look up to you and I'm inspired by your soul strength and wisdom. Much love. You know, those to me are you know, the observations of what it looks like to live in recovery, to practice these principles. You know, my best, you know, my best, um, you know, the best I could do, my best plan for trying to deal with life was to be in a bathroom stall unwrapping candy bars as quietly as possible. You know, maybe people will think I'm unwrapping some sort of personal hygiene um, you know, implement instead of a candy bar because how gross is that? You know, that's the kind of employee I was. I was in the bathroom eating candy bars because I couldn't get out um, outside or didn't want to eat yet another candy bar in front of people. Um, you know, that's the kind of employee I was. Um, <laughs> that was how I lived my life. And I'm just really so grateful that uh, the 12 steps have given me a new way of being in the world and a new way of living. And with that, I will pass. Christy, thank you so very much for sharing the story of your transformation and what being recovered looks like in your life today. And personally, I had the privilege and the honor of watching that transformation, and uh, I am so grateful to have witnessed it and, and to have seen you trudge through life, living life on life's terms. Uh, now we open the line for any questions anyone might have for Christy this morning on the recovery process, on what it means to be recovered, on implementing these steps uh, throughout her life, uh, you can do so by pressing star 1 to unmute. Hi, I'm Susie. I have a question. Yes, go ahead. Um, I'm Susie. I'm a compulsive overeater. Christy, thank you very much for sharing this morning. Um, my question is, what is the difference if there is one, between being recovered and having a daily reprieve? Mm, I think that's, I, I, you know, honestly, I think I, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, for me, I have no desire to eat compulsively. And, you know, I don't know if it's just the, the way the words are used, but, you know, I'm not cured. I am not cured. I am still a compulsive overeater. I am still a compulsive overeater. I can still be absolutely amazed, you know, that um, people will leave food on their plate. You know, I mean, it's just, it's hilarious to me that people will say, oh, I really, really have a craving for chocolate, and they'll have, you know, one Hershey's Kiss. That's what still makes me a compulsive overeater and, and tells me that I'm not cured. I'm still a compulsive overeater, and I will call another compulsive overeater, and I will say, you will not believe this. I have a coworker. She says she has to have a piece of chocolate, and she's really craving it, and she has one Hershey's Kiss, and then she's done. That's it. She doesn't want an entire bag. So that, to me, is the difference between being recovered. I don't want the Hershey's Kisses, and I don't want the whole bag. I, you know, I just know where eating one will take me. You know, I need to grow away from the food. But for me, what it says in here is that we're not cured of alcoholism. We have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual, spiritual condition. For me, it wasn't a matter of getting down to maintenance weight and then being done. 
you know, and, and white-knuckling it away from the food. I needed to apply the steps in my life so that I could grow away from the food and be recovered from that hopeless state of mind and body. I do not think about food all day, every day, which, is, which was the state of my mind. And the state of my body, again, you know, that, that craving for food. You know, I don't eat um, food today and crave more. You know, I don't have that, you know, abnormal reaction to food today. I mean, you know, it's maybe hard to try to describe it, but I, you know, I just eat what my food is. It's fuel for my body. It might as well be cardboard, you know. It's, you know, I eat, you know, I have space between my meals. I mean, I don't know if that helps answer the question, but um, that's the way I see it, as Christy sees it, if you will. Hi, Christy. Could you share your phone number? I would love to talk to you privately. Certainly. It is uh, 651-600-8556. And again, that's 651-600-8556. I um, am on uh, Central Time. And uh, I encourage you, please, to call me, leave a message, leave your phone number. Um, it is difficult, uh, you know, with the, the beautiful recovery I've seen blossom on A Vision for You. You know, I was at the first meeting, and now we have a phone list of over 600 people, not that all 599 of you were calling me. But please, you know, please do call. I love to talk to people. Thank you, because I'm really I'm – I'm really struggling with a lot of what you were saying, um, and uh, I'm just I'm trying to get my focus on on abstinence on on recovery and not abstinence, and to make this not a diet. And uh, mm -hmm. I really I really appreciate all of what you've said, and I would love to talk to you a little bit more in detail um, privately. Thank you. I'm a little Thank shy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, and I, you know, and one thing I will say that. Um, you know, just something I, you know, I, for me, I, you know, absolutely had to put the food down. I mean, there's a, you know, it says in the doctor's opinion that, that the alcoholic needs to be freed from the substance before any of this will work. So I know that that's what worked for me, that I know working the steps and eating at the same time did not work for me. I tried that. I tried that method and it didn't work. So thank you. Yes, please call. Hi, this is Iris. I have a question, Christy. Go ahead, Iris. <laughs> How do you deal with um, coffee or wine or, you know, things that are mood-altering? I mean, I got a food plan from a nutritionist, and she put coffee in there. She put an occasional glass of wine. Um, I love my coffee in the morning. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine giving it up. But there is a couple of food sponsors who said that they're, that they're mood-altering, and if, if you're struggling with giving it up, you may have too much of an attachment to it. Mm -hmm. um, that's well, I think, you know, and I, I, you know, what I will say as far as specific types of food or specific things, you know, you know, for me, um, when I went to see, I'll just give you an experience I had. When I went to see a nutritionist, and again, I went to a nutritionist, I went to my doctor, and I worked with a sponsor, you know, and I, um, you know, essentially still do that. But what um, I remember walking in to see the nutritionist and, 
she thought that eating the way I was planning to eat, you know, with my sponsor, which was specific portions, because again, that's what I need to do. Not everybody needs to do that. I need to. I knew I needed to do that. You know, she thought it was a really bad idea to not eat sugar. She thought that was really bad. She thought that was going to be a setup. She said, you know, I, you know, I think you're asking for trouble. And, um, you know, how about just even a couple of cookies? You know, a couple of cookies. And I said, I cannot have a couple of cookies. I cannot have a couple of cookies. That just won't work for me. And she said, um, well, how many can you have? You know, when you don't ask a compulsive overeater that, like me that question, because the answer you'll get is how many are there in the world? You know, um, which is why, you know, when I went to my sponsor, you know, for me, I don't drink alcohol, I drink coffee, I do, I, you know, and that's just something, again, if it's a problem for me, I talk to my sponsor about it. But, you know, again, that's, a, a, you know, something to be worked on with a sponsor and nutritionist. But again, you know, the reason I don't just work with a nutritionist um, and have a sponsor is for that very reason, because my nutritionist thought I should have a couple of cookies and my sponsor as a fellow compulsive overeater did not think that was such a good idea and neither did I. So, you know, I would encourage you to just, you know, work it through with uh, the recovering people or whatever. You've got to find what works for you, Iris, really. Thank you, Iris, for the question. Anyone else with a question regarding the program of recovery or? Hi, Leah. Yes. Hi, Leah. It's Mary Lou. Good morning. Good morning. Go ahead. Hi. Um, my question is regarding the steps. Uh, Mary Lou, grateful recovering compulsive eater on step five right now um, as we speak <laughs> um, in in it right now. And um, I um, was wondering with your step work and step when you got to step nine and you have an outsta- something outstanding, when you had something outstanding that you needed to make amends for as far as financial amends, if it was a big financial amends, like let's just say $30,000, would your sponsor say you were through the steps even if that financial amends wasn't complete? I know it sounds like an odd question, but I'm just wondering if you had a financial amends and, and how do you work step nine and finish that up if it's a huge bill that you have to do in increments? Does that make sense? Um, well, I think, you know, what I'm hearing is, is the same thing that I kind of focus on. I'll just relate it to my own story, Mary Lou, which is, you know, all I, all I have to give. And that is, you know, when I was doing step five, I focused on step five. Um, and, and I will share with you that when I walked into my first OA meeting, I read through all the steps and I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to do any of this. There's no way. You know, I thought, first of all, there's no way I'm going to be able to do these things. You know, I immediately looked at that step nine and I thought that's just crazy, not even having worked step one or having a full understanding of what it meant. Mm. Um, and the second thing for me is that, um, you know, uh, working the steps has meant that I was ready um, once I got there. I mean, there are lots of people out there that I've been able to talk to about certain um you know, situations in my life and what to do about them. You know, I remember I had a, a particular situation. It doesn't matter whether it's financial. It didn't matter to me whether it was financial or whether it was some, some big thing that I had done that I carried in my head for my entire life. You know, I remember calling a couple of people and I said, will you please meet me in a coffee shop? 
and I want to talk to you about this. And what I should do with the amends, you know, what, what should I do? Do I owe amends? And I got their perspectives on it. And that's what I would encourage you to do. Um, first of all, what works for me is to stay in the step that I was in, to not jump ahead. Because honestly, for me, you know, I, when I gave my fifth step away, I was willing to let my sponsor tell me whatever character defects were there that I needed to hear. Um, I was open to whatever kind of feedback. Help me, help me, help me. I don't want to go back to the food. I'll do anything. And that is the way I live my life today. And so, you know, there's step five and there's six and there's seven and there's eight before nine. So I know for me it was really important to make sure that I work the steps in order one day at a time. Thank you, Mary Lou, for the question. Anyone Hi, this else? is Andy. This is Susan. Andy, go ahead, and then Susan. Hi there, Christy. Thank you, Leah. Uh, this is Andy from New York. Uh, thank you so much, Christy, for your share this morning. It's been incredibly inspirational. Um, I'd like to know, I'll tell you where I am. I'm about three weeks in at A Vision for You. I'm in program about 12 years, but A Vision has really changed my program. It's really changed my life and how I'm working my program. But right now, newly abstinent again um, here in the room. What I'm struggling with is... Um, feeling since the food is down and I'm working with a vision sponsor and we're, we're plotting along, but I think we're still in like the second forward. So it's, it's taking a while. Um, how did you deal with once you put the food down, if you can remember, once you put the food down and your feelings started coming back to life? Like I lost my, my numbing agent. agent. I, lost, I lost my friend, my, my pal. And here I am feeling the anxiety and the fear that I have been quelling all these years. How did you deal with getting through the steps abstinently um, in the beginning? Mm. That is that is such a great question, and that's a question that I that I hear people ask. And you know, I absolutely can remember what that was like to put the food down, and I hope I never forget that. I hope I never forget that. You know, and I, you know, I would encourage you to, um, like I did, not pick up no matter what. You know, you, I mean, I've got one day of, you know, that I, my abstinence dates from September 9th of 2001 without exception. You know, I've not found it necessary to pick up. And I kept busy. You know, I kept busy. I gave service. Even if it was something as simple as, you know, just let me think about somebody else for two seconds. Um, because that, I had no idea what kind of a food fog I was in until I put the food down. I was in such a fog. I had no idea. I mean, trust me, I've taken drugs and, you know, used substances before that gave me a whole lot more, um, you know, I thought, uh, you know, altered my mind. But, you know, I'm the type of person that wants instant gratification, and so I wanted to feel better immediately, and I did feel better. I felt anger better. I felt sadness better. I felt everything better, as we like to say, right, in recovery. But, you know, I'll tell you what I did. I mean, honestly, I, I did service um, for people, even if it was something as simple as, I don't know, bringing the newspaper up the driveway to the front door of my neighbor's house. You know, I lived in a town 
town home. And, you know, anything I could do to keep myself busy, I remember walking into this room, this extra room I had in my house, and it was an absolute disaster. I remember opening the door, and it was an absolute disaster. It's like, you know, if anyone questions whether or not my life is unmanageable, they could just walk in this room. You know, it's like start getting your life in order, Christy, and that's what I did. You know, I just kept myself busy. I read in the, you know, like you're in the foreword. I mean, it's so, it was so important for me to identify who I was and what I was up against. And um, being of service to other people just helped me. You know, you've got three weeks of abstinence. That is, you know, two weeks and six days more than maybe somebody else has. You know, reach out to those people and talk to them. There's nothing, nothing that ensures my immunity from compulsive overeating and working with another person. Thank you, Andy, for the question. Now we move on to Susan. Susan, star one to unmute. Oh, I apologize. I forgot to unmute my mute button. Thank you. Um, thank you both so much. Christy, I, I, I've heard you, sh you lead and share so many Tuesdays. It was wonderful to hear your more in-depth story. I'm going to ask a question I've asked before because I'd love a more in-depth answer. You may or may not be inclined to give one, but, but I'll ask it to you and see, see where you take it. It's about the effect of food. I'm very clear of the effect that food has on me, and I'm clear that uh, my many binge foods, which I've gratefully been able to put down with God's help, uh, the effect that those had on me and the fact that when I started eating them, I couldn't stop. What's less clear to me is that I, I'm a volume eater as well, and even if I don't eat the volume and I'm eating my weighed and measured portions of my abstinent food, an effect is created. I feel soothed. I find it I'm not saying it does enough of the trick, which is why I'm working the steps. There's some major underlying things going on, but it, it, it has an effect. And so I wanted to understand that better, that even though in my case it doesn't, these foods don't um, require that I just keep eating them endlessly, I still do feel that effect. So I wonder what you have to say on that, as well as as a recovered person, Perhaps you don't need to be soothed as much with food because you, you are recovered, but, you know, what's that like today for you when you eat your weight and measured abstinent foods? What's your, quote, unquote, I always use the term relationship with food like, and perhaps it's not a relationship anymore. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you, Susan. That's a great question, too. I, um, you know, I love that many of us in uh, Overeaters Anonymous describe having a relationship with food, um, myself included. You know, I certainly had a relationship with food. And, you know, I've heard, you know, people talk about how sad they were to give up a particular food, even in recovery, because it became a problem for them. Um, and, and, you know, I, I mean, you know, we're compulsive overeaters. Um, for me, it is a matter of not, you know, I, I'll, I'll say it, I'll answer the question like this. I do not seek ease and comfort from food. I do not seek ease and comfort from weighed and measured food. You know, I eat my meals, they're spaced out. I, I don't eat food that, um, you know, might give me a problem. And again, that's something that you can identify through a sponsor, you know, helping you. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> 
I, I don't eat, I mean, I could eat a weight and measured meal, you know, I could inhale it in 10 minutes, but I don't do that today either. You know, I don't do that today. I don't let myself get too hungry. You know, if I'm waiting eight hours between a meal, I'm in trouble. So there are, even though I weigh and measure my meals, you know, I, I eat at reasonable times so my blood sugar isn't crashing. I don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, as we like to say. Um, my, truly my relationship with food today is that it is fuel for my body. You know, I, I used to say I ate when I was hungry and I, I was never hungry. I never let myself get hungry. You know, today my body, you know, I mean, and I know it's time to eat my lunch because it's, you know, four and a half to five hours after my breakfast. I mean, I'm not thinking about eating my lunch you know, an hour after breakfast, there's a problem if I am. So I just, I, like you said, Susan, I mean, maybe everyone has a different answer to this, but, you know, food is fuel for my body, and that's the quote-unquote relationship I have with it today. Thank you, Susan, for the question. Anyone else this morning with a question for Christy regarding the recovery process or any examples? Yes, Amy, good morning. Go ahead. Morning. Thank you. Thank you, Christy, so much for your experience, strength, and hope. Um, I was wondering if you had a sponsee, how would you handle um, in regarding of a certain kind of behavior, um, for instance, chewing gum? Uh, they can't seem to let go of, uh, they're very dependent on chewing their gum. <laughs> How would you deal with that? Mm. Well, that's a, you know, that's a great question. And, um, you know, not to get into, you know, of course, OA has no opinion on outside issues. I would imagine that includes chewing gum. But here's what I'll say about my own experience with chewing gum, which is what I would share with a sponsee. You know, for some people, it's not a problem. It was a problem for me, and what the problem was for me is that um, two things were the problem. First of all, of course, even sugar-free gum has that flavor, whatever. But what was more of a problem for me is that I felt like I could not not chew something. It's like my mouth and jaw had to be going all the time. And um, I didn't like that feeling. I didn't like that feeling. That felt like old behavior to me. And I remember with my sponsor saying, you know, I think chewing gum is a problem. That's the first thing I did. I said, I said it out loud to my sponsor, um, which meant I couldn't take it back after that. You know, I said it. I've said this, this might be a problem for me. And so we started with committing. Um, I was going to commit to eating no more than three pieces a day. And what I found for me is that that made me crazy too. I wanted to, you know, should I eat all three of them at once? Should I eat one after the other? Should I eat one in the morning, one at noon, one at night? My whole focus in my day was on gum. And um, that's not what the steps teach me. You know, the big book doesn't say, um, you know, uh, I don't know, that we can still be obsessed about certain things and it's okay. So for me, I said to my sponsor, I don't care what I ever say to you again, and I've had the same sponsor, I've had the luxury, um, but I've said, you know, I can't chew gum. I just can't do it. So I don't. And that's just my, again, my experience. Other people, fine, but that's just me. I just didn't like that feeling of having to have something. 
Thank you, Irini, for the question. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Andy again from New York. Hi, Andy. Go ahead. Hey, thanks. Okay, so Christy, um, so two things. I, I would like to hear from you a little bit more about um, your relationship with your higher power and um, and how uh, you what how you engage um, how and when you engage with your higher power, and, and also if you could expand perhaps early on in abstinence. And the second thing is. Um, if I could have your phone number again, I just want to confirm that I got it right. Thank you. Sure, sure. Let me do that first before I go off on a tangent about my higher power. So my phone number again is 651-600-8556. And what I will say is about you know my higher power, and, and truly this is what happened for me, I was abstinent on September 9th of 2001, and what that meant was I called my sponsor. I said, this is what I'm going to eat, you know, within the confines of this food plan, and I'm not going to eat any more, and I'm not going to eat any less. I'm going to eat exactly what this is. And I woke up on September 10th of 2001, and I called my sponsor, and I said, I have experienced an absolute miracle. And she said, what's that? And I said, I told you what I was going to eat yesterday. I ate every single thing I committed without exception. And this is an absolute miracle. This is an absolute miracle. No one was in my kitchen with me. No one was in my kitchen with me. And I I did what I said I was going to do. And that right there, you know, aside from my sponsor saying, awesome, do that same thing again today. And I've taken it one day at a time ever since. That right there was evidence of a power greater than me in my life. That was all I needed. That was it. That was it. Um, for me, I, I knew that you know, no matter what I thought or how I felt or how I would have designed this darn crazy recovery program, if it were up to me, maybe it would look different. However, um, if it was necessary to find a power greater than me, then that's exactly what I was going to do. Um, I was not going to hang that on any one particular person. You know, my sponsor wasn't my higher power. Um, you know, the power of the group was a higher power for me. I just knew there was something, some kind of an energy, something outside of me. As long as I knew my higher power wasn't me, I was good to go. Um, you know, as my recovery progressed, the definition of my higher power has certainly formulated, it shaped itself more in, um, you know, just having that knowing that I can rely on a power greater than myself, that no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to be okay, that no matter what happens in my life, I'm going to be okay. You know, I lived my whole life as though the other shoe was going to drop at any moment. I am in constant contact with my higher power. Constant contact with my higher power. You know, God direct my thinking. God direct my thinking that it be divorced from self-pity, selfish, self-seeking motives. God direct my thinking. You know, God, I offer myself to thee. 
my creator take all of me. I mean, there's some great prayers. Thy will not mine be done. You know, all, you know, great, great language to use all throughout the big book. And I use that on a daily basis. You know, I have a joke with a friend of mine that, you know, the shortest serenity prayer in the world is whatever, right? <laughs> whatever. I mean, you know, whatever it is that I need to turn over to my higher power. I, I do, you know, whatever it is, you know, or I'll call somebody up and say, I have to turn this over. Name it, claim it, dump it. You know, I just, I just have that absolute faith and belief and it happened with me on that. It just happened on that first day. It didn't mean that I believed in God and all-knowing God and all of that on that first day. I just knew I had experienced a miracle and I could just hang, hang on to that and I did. Thank you, Andy. Anyone else with a question regarding the recovery process, the program of recovery? This Hi, is Dwayne. Can I ask a question? Yes, Dwayne, go ahead. And who else did I hear? Uh, it was Debbie. Hi. Debbie. Okay, Dwayne and then Debbie, please. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. This, is, this is Dwayne Compulsive Long Eater. Prissy, thank you so much uh, for your story and your share. I have a question kind of similar to what you just answered. The big book teaches us that uh, we can stay recovered and be recovered if we stay in fit spiritual condition. Can you uh, elaborate? On, or define what fit uh, spiritual condition is for you in your recovery process. Oh, yeah, thank you so much, Dwayne. I, I wish I could come up with something new and exciting. You know, what, um, to me, what working or living the steps, you know, certainly the inventory that we take, um, you know, helps us identify those, you know, those character defects that we have, right? You know, resentful, selfish, you know, was I dishonest? Was I afraid? You know, those are the, the kinds of things that the big book outlines and helps me identify, you know, do am I suffering from these, um, any of these character defects? What the big book also does is it talks about what I do, you know, what should I be doing when I wake up, you know, and when I retire at night. I mean, it doesn't get any more simple than that. And throughout the day. I mean, the big book says, here's what you do when you wake up, here's what you do when you go to bed, and here's what you do all throughout the day. So for me, you know, during the day, if I find myself agitated or doubtful, I can ask my higher power to direct my thinking. You know, it's, you know I mean, I can leave my house in the morning having, you know, you know, gotten on my knees and said, you know, said the serenity prayer. I can listen to a vision for you. I've talked to my sponsor. I've talked to my sponsees. I'm on my knees. You know, I'm in fit spiritual condition. I'm in the right place. You know, I said the serenity prayer and the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer. And I'm ask God, you know, as I go throughout the day, please help me be helpful. And then I'm going to walk out the door and I'm going to try to merge onto one of the highways. You know, it's like now what happens? I mean, I throughout the day have to maintain that spiritual connection with my higher power, and I cannot let something take over my brain. You know, I mean, I might be in a meeting and someone says something to me, or I read something, or I get an email. You know, what do I do with that stuff? How do I act around that stuff? How do I model the program of recovery in every area of my life? If I get upset, I'm human. Of course I get upset. Of course I get angry. Of course I get, 
you know, people step on my toes and, you know, my first thought might be to retaliate. But what I don't do is react immediately. At least I try not to. Again, I'm not perfect. I'm still human. But, you know, I pause. In the same way I don't completely just walk by a candy dish and grab the candy out of there, you know, what I have today is a pause between reaching out to that candy dish. You know, I can think before I reach out. You know, and I'm not going to reach out today in the same way that I know I'm in trouble. You know, I am doomed if I let resentment again, like it says in the big book, that's the number one offender. It's the number one offender. It will kill us. It, that's what it says, that we, you know, again, stay out of that. That's the danger zone for me. You know, fear, I suffer from a hundred forms of fear. Am I going to let, you know, fear permeates every aspect of my life. Am I going to let fear run my life? Or am I going to let faith run my life? You know, if I am living in fear, I am not having, I don't have any faith with my higher power, in my higher power. And, um, you know, I can work us four through nine. You know, again, name it, claim it, dump it. Um, and that's that's what I do. I mean, there's, you know, there's all kinds of, you know, forms you can get out there to work through it. The big book does an incredible job of, you know, guiding us through how to work steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine to get rid of those character defects so we don't go back to the food. And I, I hope that answered your question. Thank you. Yes, it does. Thank you so very much. Appreciate it. Thank, thanks, Dwayne, for the question. And now we move on to Debbie. Hi, um, I just really wanted to put my voice here to say thank you. Um, I'm fairly new in OA, and um, I had the opportunity to go through the steps in February, um, and it changed. Uh, you know, I really did have this awareness, and the more I hear of other people's uh, challenges and their journeys and um, their continual reminder that they – know that the system is simple. It even says that in the big book. It's simple, but you have to follow it. And every day I'm following it, and I don't have the compulsion that I once did. Um, that doesn't mean that I still don't, as you gave this great example about the coworker, you know, saying, oh, I need chocolate, and they're happy with the one, you know, piece. Um, I'm still, like, in that world of craziness. So, I greatly appreciate, especially uh, during the Q&A part where you responded about, yes, you're recovered, but that doesn't mean you're not still um, a, an overeater or compulsive about your eating relationship or the food or whatever the identity might be. And um, I just really wanted to say thanks. Uh, thanks for bringing your voice and your story and your willingness to um, be of service. Thanks. You're welcome, and yeah, thank you, Debbie, and welcome, welcome to OA. Thanks. Hi, this is Kate from Pittsburgh. Kate, go ahead. Thank you, Debbie. Go ahead, Kate. Thanks, Debbie, and thank you, Christy, um, for talking. I wanted to know, I, um, I just am in a point in my recovery where I'm starting to, I mean, experience the promises and um, people that I've known for a long time can see a change in me and people that I've just met or have met in the past year honestly wouldn't recognize me um, 
before. But so with that, though, I guess my question for you is how open are you with um, your involvement in OA and being in recovery? And I'm just kind of like now telling some like my fiance's family members or extended family that I like see if I see a reason to say that I'm in OA um, or AA then I then I do but I as far as with anonymity like how far do you go how do you walk that line Mm, yeah, great question. Hi, Kate. Um, hi. I, hi. Are you talking about, it sounds like you're talking about people who aren't already in OA. So these are, right. you know, the, the world at large, the people outside, so to speak. Um, I'll, I'll say it like this. I, so, you know, I'm very open about my recovery. I mean, people, you know, I go to the, you know, the holiday parties and I go to the potlucks and I just sit there, you know, and I talk to people because I want to be, you know, first of all, I'm not triggered by the food that's there, which is nothing short of a miracle. Um, and I also want to be part of the, you know, part of work. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a colleague of these people, and I want to be there. So I'll, you know, give you just the examples at work. Everyone in my personal life knows I'm in recovery, so I'm very open about the fact that I work a 12-step program. And, um, you know, I don't drink and I don't, you know, I'll bring my own food. Thank you so much. You know, when I get together with friends, it's just easier for me to do that. Um, And at work, you know, I mean, I will take the opportunity if it presents itself. Um, People think I'm on some crazy diet because they know I don't eat the cakes that we always have to celebrate anniversaries at work and that sort of thing. Um, and people will say, you know, you've got such willpower. And, and if, you know, I've said before, oh, are you kidding me? I could eat that whole thing. It's, you know, it's, I, it's just better for me not to get started. It's just better for me not to get started. So that is the way I look at, um, you know, my recovery today is by telling people, you know, I have an opportunity to share the message and um, I share it at every opportunity. A lot of times people just want to know, you know, the quick and easy solution, um, but, you know, I'll, I, share, I share it all if people want to know. Thank you, Kate, for the question. Thanks, thanks Christy. Hi, Christy. This is Renee in Ohio. Go ahead, Renee. Um, could you talk a little bit about um, when you first got abstinent and the feelings and the journey you went through? <laughs> you, Renee, you want me to talk about the roller coaster ride of recovery? Um, I certainly, <laughs> yeah, I certainly can do that. You know, again, I was blown away by how much of a food fog I had been in. And and what I mean by that is I did not know how clouded my thinking was. And um, I honestly, I had no idea. I mean, I was just astounded by that, that I, it's like, wow, I didn't know that food was so mind-altering. I mean, obviously, I sought that ease and comfort, but I really didn't know until I put the food down. And so for me, again, it's, it's a matter of, you know, literally, it felt like I had peeled away that fog from my eyes, and I, I, I looked at my life. I mean, you know, I weighed 300 pounds. I was unemployed. I, 
you know, I had this room in my house with, you know, bags of, you know, like grocery bags full of junk mail and check stubs and disconnect notices. And, you know, my life was a mess. My life was a mess. I mean, that's what early recovery looked like to me. It's like, Christy, you have really made a mess of your life here. And I had, you know, unfortunately, I did not have it together. And trust me, Renee, I thought I had it together, just a little problem with food, right? I mean, I knew I was crazy about food, but I didn't know that the rest of my life was also unmanageable. So for me, you know, I just hung on for the ride. I hung on for the ride. And I remember, and I hope to never forget, never, ever, ever to forget what that first 30 days were like for me. I wanted, you know, at my meeting they hand out a 30-day medallion when you've got 30 days of abstinence. And I wanted to be clean and sober so I could get that medallion. I mean, that's what I worked for is um, I just really wanted to get through that first 30 days. And, you know, people who had gone beyond 30 days told me that it really got it got better after that. It really did. It just It's like, you know, the first 30 days is a little bit of a mess, and I was detoxing. I'd eaten processed food. food. Food tasted horrible to me because I was used to eating just horribly processed food and that sort of thing. I was eating vegetables and fruits and, you know, that weren't baked in pies and covered with cheese sauce and all that kind of stuff for the first time in my life. But I hung on. I just trusted what other people said, and they just said, hang on. They said, hang on, and I did. So that's what it looked like for me. Thank you, Renee, for your question. Anyone else this morning? This is Lisa from South Jersey. Lisa, and did I hear someone else? Lonnie. Lonnie. Okay, so Lisa and then Lonnie. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Christy. Good morning, everyone. Christy, thank you so much for your story. I always love your shares. Um, and I identified with a lot of it. But I have a question. Um, you mentioned in par- as part of your story that at, when you were in your disease that you and your partner used to diet together and, and what all you did. And my question is, now that you are recovered, how would you um, – what do you suggest to people who are living with other people – who are compulsive overeaters, um, how do you, de- and, and not recovered, like how do you deal with that, or are you dealing with that, or I don't know, could you give me a little help with that? Sure, sure. I mean, I can, you know, again, just share my own experience with that. Um, you know, for me, what I know today is that nobody could have told me I was a compulsive overeater. Nobody could have told me that. Um, so I had to come to that on my own, and you know, just like everyone does. So that's the first thing I'll say is that uh, I have people in my life today, and have you know, lived with people who have admitted they were powerless over food and needed to do something. And you know, I'll just give you an example for. Um, You know, just the example of my parents, that's probably a really big one because both of them are compulsive overeaters and they're suffering horrible consequences from their eating compulsively and have been in OA before and are not currently working the steps or in OA at all. So, I mean, that's a pretty good um, example that I can give you. And, 
you know, I remember going to visit them one time and, um, you know, I talked it over with people in recovery, some of the people in my fellowship about, you know, not sitting idly by and watching my parents die. And I talked about it with my sister who was with me. The two of us were visiting um, our parents. And I just said, you know, I mean, I talked it over with people and I just said, you know, I do not want either of them to die or me to die without having said something. And again, they admitted that they were powerless over food. And so that's exactly what I did. I expressed, I came, I had someone help me come up with language. You know, I am concerned. I love you. I am concerned. I'm concerned about um, what you're doing. And, um, you know, I need to say that. And my you know, I needed to say that, you know, for for my sake and for um, for my parents' sake, also knowing that they may or may not be receptive to it. There was nothing in me that said, wow, if I tell them that I'm concerned about them and that I love them and that I don't want them to die, that maybe they'll do something. And they did not. Um, you know, the response was essentially that it really wasn't any of my business. And that was okay, too, because it isn't any of my business. You know, if, um, you know, for example, uh, I also have someone in my life who, who is living with someone who is a compulsive overeater, and, you know, they, they just basically nod and smile when the partner says, you know, I just, I don't know what to do, I'm having trouble with food, and they've been watching, you know, this person in recovery for years, um, you know, be recovered. And so, you know, it is very difficult to watch other people in our lives that we love and care about kill themselves with food, basically. I mean, there's just nothing more sad. And we all know, or at least most of us, I know what a horrible life that is. And I also know that there was nothing anybody could have said or done. My desperation had to come from within. My desperation had to come within, from within, and I, you know, that's the only thing I found that worked for me. You know, people, people were concerned about me when I weighed 305 pounds and was put in the hospital. You know, my mother-in-law was a, you know, was a nurse at my mother-in-law at the time, nurse, extremely concerned about my health and well-being, um, but that didn't make me not, you know, eat compulsively. So, I don't know. That's a tough one. It's a tough one. Thank you. And Leah, let's, Leah, let's give it just, uh, just uh, you know, 10 more minutes here. Let's do Besides that. 10. Okay, thanks sounds, so much. Sounds great. Thank you for your time. And Lisa, thanks for the question. Now we move on to Lonnie. Lonnie, you may need to press star 1 to unmute. Hi, this is Lonnie. Um, my question centers around something you touched upon before about um, fear is the absence of faith. And what I find myself, you know, when I'm not in the food, um, as all these feelings and emotions and, I guess, fears arrive, that I'm scared to death of not doing certain things. I guess I'm scared to death of letting go of control, that I, I, I guess I don't really have the faith and how do I move from that place to get out of the fear into the faith and be able to just totally surrender? 
You know, Lonnie, what I can do is tell you, you know, I would take you to the big book and page 67, which is, you know, which is great. I mean, there's a whole, you know, number of paragraphs about, um, about fear here. Uh, you know, the word fear, um, it's an evil and corroding thread. And, uh, you know, it describes how we live with fear and, um, you know, being able to put those down on paper and really, um, you know, that self-reliance to me is, you know, what I heard you talk about is, is control. You know, how do I give up control? And, you know, that is a tough one. And the hardest thing, the hardest thing, I will tell you, the hardest thing for me, the hardest thing for me was giving up that what I thought the control was I had around food. Honestly, if I could give that up, I could give anything up. If I could call someone up and say, here is what I'm eating, here is what I'm eating, and follow it to the letter, I could do anything. I could do anything. Food was the most precious thing to me. I wanted no one to come between me and my food. No one, nothing to come between me and my food until I asked someone to come between me and my food. And I was willing to give up that sense of control I thought I had around food. You know, there was, again, no freedom in eating whatever I wanted without abandon. I was not free. And so for me, I mean, honestly, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done. Anything else, you'd think it'd be pretty easy after that. Um, and for me, it was, it, you know, I had just had faith-building activities. And, you know, that's one thing my sponsor taught me early on. You know, wow, you got through that just like after day one. You got through that, now just do the same thing again. And I've learned that my faith has, has evolved. You know, the first time I, um, you know, I don't know, didn't get in there and try to fix something, uh, and it turned out just fine. I mean, that was a faith-building activity for me so that I could say, oh, wow, things are supposed to turn out the way they turn out. You know, I, um, you know, whatever that looks like today, it's like, you know, everybody in the world, if I believe that everybody else in the world has their own higher power and their own path, it makes it a lot easier for me. So with respect to other people and with respect to myself, you know, I'm, I'm it, you know, am I, again, you know, do I want to live in fear? That's just not a good place to live. And I don't want to get to the point where my way of dealing with fear eventually, eventually will, you know, make that bag of Doritos look pretty tasty. That new flavor that's come out, you know, since September 9th of 2001. So, you know, God remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. I mean, that's the fear prayer that's in the big book. Remove my fear and direct my attention to what you would have me be. It's, you know, pretty simple. Although it's not always easy. <laughs> I get that too, Lonnie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lonnie, for the question. Anyone else Hi. this morning? My name is Patty. Patty, go ahead. Yes. Um, thank you so much, Christy. I really got a lot out of your share. And um, I hear you in the mornings, and I always get a lot out of what you share. Um my question is, and it may be a silly one, but do I need to wait till step 12 to start sponsoring someone, or can I sponsor them up to the level where I'm at? Well, you know, I, that's a great question, Patty. And I know for me, um, you know, I needed to put the food down. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know what the answer is as far as when to start sponsoring. Um, I certainly did not wait that long. 
um, I did not, have, you know, work through all of the steps. And I think, you know, I when I started sponsoring people, I I never felt like I was ready. But you know, just like I, you know, when Andy asked the question about, um, you know, I can't remember what it was. I mean, she had mentioned that she had like three and a half weeks or whatever it was of abstinence. You know, it doesn't mean that you can't call people up and talk to them if you're. You know, if you've got one day, you've got something, you've got, you know, one day of experience to offer the newcomer. Um, I did need to certainly work through step one. For me, it helped to be on the path in step four. You know, I needed to have, uh, you know, know that there was a power greater than myself and, you know, turn my life and my will over to my higher power and begin sponsoring people through steps one, two, and three. And then, of course, I continued moving through the steps so that I could sponsor people through those steps. So it did help for me to have a little bit of time under my belt. But for me, I don't, you know, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer there, to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, you know, for me, as I was working through my fourth step inventory, just identifying my character defects, I took on sponsees. And I always work with sponsees. And I always work with more than one sponsee, because that has just helped me. Since then, since I guess December of 2001, I've been a sponsor. So I've been sponsoring people. December of 2001. So yeah, I've been doing that for a while. Thank you, Patty, for the question. Anyone else this morning this before we Beth. wrap May up? I, this is Beth. Can you hear me? Yes, Beth, go ahead. You'll be our last question. Go ahead. All right, thank you. Um, this is a, qu a general question about a vision for you. But first, I, I wanted to tell Christy I really identified with the that acceptance movement that you went through. <laughs> I did that. Yeah, boy, I did that for years and years. But uh, thankfully I found OA and I've been in recovery now for a little over two years and really doing well. Uh, I recently found a vision for you and I've just been getting so much out of it. Um, earlier in the meeting it was uh, mentioned about the phone list or the member list or something like that. Um, how do I get on that and get a copy of it? And I also wanted to find out about sponsors in this particular program. Leah, I'll let you take that yes, one. Yes, we can certainly uh, take care of that. Um, in order to get on the contact list, you'll want to email Rosanna at the following email address. And that address is a vision for you 164 at yahoo.com a vision for you 164 at yahoo.com email rosanna uh she will send you uh just some informational questions to respond to and you will be put on the contact list. That contact list consists of over 700 members currently and is emailed out generally uh, the first week of every month. So that is a way to get on the contact list. And uh, I'm just going to close the meeting now. Thank you, Christy, for your very inspiring and revealing share this morning. Uh, speaking to us about your experience, strength, and hope in the recovery process and what it means to be recovered. I'll close now with 
a reading from the chapter entitled A Vision for You on page 164, and it goes as follows. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.